Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. Another amazing guest. I'm interviewing Sarah Todd Hammer. Now, Sarah Todd's going to teach us all about uh, disability advocacy, something I didn't know a ton about, um, something that she is very involved in. Uh, her story starts, we're going to talk a lot about, uh, you know, everything to do with why she's involved in disability advocacy and the disability uh, that she has now. Uh, but the story starts with her at eight years old in, in a ballet class and basically 24 hours later the next day, in that time frame involves uh, being airlifted um, with a hospital, being paralyzed from the neck down, uh, the, the, the road to recovery from that and kind of where she is now. So it was just a fascinating story. I learned so much uh, just about resilience, overcoming you know obstacles that, that come in front of you and just uh, and just kind of thriving really i i don't think anyone would look at sarah todd's story and not think that she is just thriving now um something that she's going to say that just really resonated with me was um she's she does a lot because of her disability not in spite of it um and i really really that that was just a powerful statement because she really has shown that you know, disability is not a it's not a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. It just makes someone different. It's it's just uh, another another kind of stop in the in the road to diversity. You know, diverse abilities is is just the same as as anything else. So I really uh, I think that we should kind of look at this as a as a not not a negative at all. I, I think that we we can learn a lot from Sarah Todd. We can learn a lot from from a lot of people in this dif- disability advocacy space. Um, so uh, I, I really appreciate her time. Uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Sarah Todd Hammer. I'm here today with Sarah Todd Hammer. Sarah Todd, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Jackson? I'm good. We were just talking before about kind of the the double name things, being from the South, that Sarah Todd thing. Um, you 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 thanked me for asking about it. Do you do people mess this up all the time, or what happens? Yes, people mess it up all the time. I'm often called Sarah, or people think my last name is Todd Hammer, but it is an unusual name, so I understand, but I am constantly correcting people on my name. Yeah, well, I can I can only imagine, but beyond your name, just kind of introduce, introduce yourself to us. Yeah, of course. So I'm Sarah Todd. I'm 20 years old from Atlanta, Georgia. Currently, I'm at college. I'm actually in my dorm room right now. Um, I go to Davidson College in North Carolina. It's a very small school, about 2,000 students. And I'm a sophomore. I just declared my majors. I'm majoring in psychology and communication studies. And I'm actually thinking I might be on the pre-law track pursuing disability rights law in the future. Um, I've been disabled for almost 12 years of my life now. When I was eight years old, I became paralyzed from the neck down suddenly, and I have been diagnosed with acute flaccid myelitis or AFM. I've made a big recovery and I will get a lot into that later, but 
um, yeah, I'm mainly interested in disability activism and advocacy um, in my personal life and here at school. I do a lot with disability advocacy at school too. So I'm really excited to be here talking to you. Absolutely excited to excited to have you. And I do want to kind of get into into that journey and and what happened with you. Um, you you know we talked beforehand. We we kind of exchanged. Uh, what the questions would be. And you said you hadn't really looked at them since I sent them. I hadn't looked at them since I sent them either. So I'm really glad that you said the, you know, the condition because I just have AFM. So I was hoping you were going to say it because I was like, I have no idea what AFM is anymore. I remembered when I wrote it, but I don't know anymore. So tell me again what AFM is. Yes, of course. So AFM stands for acute flaccid myelitis. And basically it's caused by a virus attacking the spinal cord. So it causes a spinal cord injury. So when everything happened to me, my spinal cord was damaged from C2 to T1, which is a very large section of the spinal cord. And that's why I ended up paralyzed. Um, I was originally diagnosed with something else though, because AFM, the term wasn't actually coined until about 2012, 2014. And all of this happened to me in 2010. Mm -hmm. So it's not a new condition necessarily, but um, it is being talked about more now and a lot more research is happening and more cases are happening recently. So that's basically the gist of AFM. It's kind of related to polio when people talk about it, like Mm -hmm. they often call it modern polio, but they are completely separate things. Like totally different diseases. They're not at all related, but they do have some similarities. Um, So it's often called modern polio, just so people can have like an idea of what it is. Right. Yeah. And I want to kind of get into, I'm sure that, you know, the story that you've told a gazillion times by now, but we're we're talking about, you know, that you were paralyzed, that you've made a, a, a pretty big recovery, but let's talk about exactly what happened. I believe you were uh, in a, in a dance class when things started, started happening. So what, what, I guess what you're comfortable with sharing, kind of tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the initial onset of, of, uh, everything. Mm-hmm. So yes, I was in dance class and everything happening is completely unrelated to dance. It just so happened that I was in ballet class and I just got a really excruciating like head and neck ache out of nowhere. And I was, fine throughout the whole day until that happened. I'd gone to school like normal and everything. But then once I got this headache, I was just going to go home. So my mom was getting ready to take me home. Um, And on the way out of the studio, I reached down to just adjust my tights a little bit before we walked out and my arms and hands just stopped working out of nowhere. And so obviously I told my mom that and we rushed to the urgent care because it was the closest thing to us. Um, And then once we got there, like just a few minutes later, I couldn't walk, but I could, I could still move my legs. I just couldn't walk. So my mom carried me in and they flew me by helicopter to the hospital. And I was in the emergency room there for six hours And they didn't do anything except give me Motrin for the pain in my neck because they didn't believe that anything was actually wrong. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, my parents were pleading with the doctor for six hours to do something. Then we got sent home and he said to come back the next morning if I wasn't better. 
And then the next morning I woke up and couldn't move my legs. <laughs> so then we went back to the hospital by ambulance and I was there for two months doing rehab and recovering. So that's kind of the gist of how everything actually happened in the beginning. Yeah, which is is something for sure. I want to kind of talk a little bit more about that, but just kind of a moment of levity on something that's very serious. I've talked to quite a few people who have like a specific thing, you know, that has made them kind of well-known and it's almost just like a, I don't know, second nature and it just rolls off the tongue. How much of that is, do you just have almost rehearsed and you can just tell that story easy now? Like you're oh. not even thinking about it anymore. <laughs> I don't have to think about it at all. And actually it doesn't even bother me to tell the story. Like I love talking about disability stuff and like, uh-huh. obviously it was terrifying, but like now I've told it so many times and like, Mm -hmm. I've even just told friends about it. We talk about it occasionally. So I can easily tell that story. I've told it to tons of people on the news, told it to friends, told it to doctors. So probably told it a million times by now. Uh, Yeah. I always (laughs) think that's, that's, that's always interesting how we, we kind of can get locked in. Like I, I work in admissions at a college myself and, and just the process of getting people, you know, signed up and their their account set up sometimes i'm halfway through it and i don't even realize what i'm saying it just kind of comes out so i feel like when you have this story that's probably the case that you've almost just refined it where you don't even have to necessarily even think about it anymore so yes <laughs> yeah so let's talk about you know that you you're in the you're in the hospital for two months the initial onset too i, I can't even imagine most people listening probably everyone listening nothing like this has ever happened. Like what, I mean, what was going through your mind when you're like, I mean, people weren't believing you either, which has to be super frustrating. I mean, the craziest thing in the world is happening to you and people are like, ah, just take some motion. You'll be all right. What, what, what was your thoughts there? Well, since I was so young, I was only eight years old. Mm-hmm. I felt like I could trust the doctor uh, because mm-hmm. I'd always been able to trust doctors. Um, so when he said that I would be better in the morning, I was like, okay, well, I'll probably be better in the morning. And I remember being really excited when I woke up the next morning, because I was like, oh, I'll be fine now, because that's what the doctor said. Mm -hmm. But right when I woke up and tried to move and couldn't, I was like, well, obviously, (laughs) he was wrong. And I was terrified on the helicopter flight and in the ambulance on the way to the hospital the next day. And when they were running tests the next day, I was terrified of those. But even though I was scared throughout the whole experience, I kind of just remember like, ev- like thinking everything will be fine. And even when I was in the intensive care unit for 12 days, I was watching like my dance videos from my dance company and thinking, oh, like I'll make it to the dance company auditions in a couple months. And like, mm-hmm. I just kept looking forward to that and thinking that it was going to happen. So I definitely was scared the whole time but I hadn't necessarily like processed that my life had changed forever. I think that was just kind of something I knew once I'd had my disability for a few months, but it wasn't really like it ever just like hit me at once. Like that was never something that was really hard for me to necessarily accept. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I kind of rolled with the punches pretty well. Like I had very difficult moments along the way, but yeah, I was just, scared at the normal times, but also just kind of rolled with it. Well, that's, that's a good way. That's a good way to be. I don't know if everyone would have been able to do that. So that's, that's commendable for sure. So let's talk about kind of the recovery process. Obviously a lot of people with 
different paralysis happens because of, you know, a traumatic injury and they don't necessarily always recover. And it's just about trying to get a little bit of mobility back. What, uh, what was the, I guess, recovery process? You were in there for, for two months. I want to kind of hear from the beginning, like, you know, exactly what the paralysis was, if it was, you know, how much of it, and then to what recovery um, you, you got to and where you're at now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was paralyzed from the neck down. So pretty severe case. I never had to be on a ventilator, but I was in the ICU just because my lungs were weaker. So they wanted to monitor that. I had steroid treatment, but that didn't work. So then I had plasma phresis. So like plasma exchange, and that seemed to help my legs. And actually after the first treatment, I moved my big toe that evening. So I had five treatments of that and that really seemed to help with that. And then after I had that, I moved to the inpatient rehab floor for about five weeks and I just did therapy like all day, every day. So I practiced moving my arms, like with the therapist, like moving them for me, like playing games on the Wii. I practiced uh, moving a manual wheelchair with my legs once I started to get movement back, which actually helped my legs get stronger. I remember riding like, um, like a bicycle around the hospital, like to get my legs stronger. And eventually I was able to start learning to walk with my therapist, like holding on to me. So I basically just had to do a bunch of therapy in the hospital and then out of the hospital for a long time too. And I was really lucky with the movement I regained in my legs. And then I ended up regaining a little bit of movement in my right hand and in some areas of my arms, but not like very many areas of my arms. Um, And a lot of the movement I gained back in the hospital is like, that's basically where I am now. I've gotten a little bit stronger since leaving the hospital, but I didn't regain much in the months after that. Um, So just hours and hours of therapy in the hospital, basically. Which I'm sure it was was not not an easy process either. You know, you you talked about how you know the infection is something that they only put a name on several years after it, it happened to you. What kind of I, I guess how prevalent is it? And then what kind of advancements have they made with it? Or what what people that that have had this infection since then, you know, what kind of uh you know things are they dealing with? Have they been able to make a lot of different advancements where it's not as big of a thing? Is it, have you, did you have a, you know, more minor case or talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I was probably one of the earliest cases of AFM. Um, the cases have been increasing about every other year since around this time, they started monitoring cases in like 2012, 2014. And that's around when the name was coined and the cases were, increasing like exponentially every other year. And the CDC was monitoring that. Um, However, the CDC is not counting all cases because I am not counted as a case. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a little bit of a problem, but actually like with COVID restrictions, the AFM cases have gone down because the virus that causes AFM is an enterovirus, which is the virus that basically causes a cold. Uh, So Actually, that's been one positive thing with COVID is AFM cases have gone down, which is pretty interesting. But yeah, there have been 
a lot of research initiatives happening lately because it's been in the news a lot. So more doctors are hearing about it and knowing about it, which is great. My doctor in Texas specializes in AFM and he's been doing a lot of the work there. And he's actually the one who re-diagnosed me with AFM. Um, There's still not much research out there though, but more and more people are knowing about it. And actually my human neuropsychology professor here at Davidson, I asked him if he knew about it and he said he did. So the word is getting out more, which is really interesting. And that's been because of the news. Um, To answer your question about like cases and the more like typical case, I was kind of like a pretty typical case. Like a lot of AFM cases are like paralyzed from the neck down, like quadriplegic. And then a lot of them do make a decent recovery, but recover in kind of an odd way like I did. But also there are a lot of kids who have AFM and they need a ventilator or they can't eat. So they need a feeding tube or they have facial paralysis and they might not recover at all. And then there's also a lot of AFM cases where just like one limb is affected or like one part of a limb is affected. So it can range a lot. Um, It's a lot of ways that it can affect people, which is really interesting and like a cool area of study when it comes to AFM. Dan, you talked about what happens to a lot of kids. Is AFM generally happening to, to children and not adults? Yes. So it is mostly children, which... I don't think they technically know why, but um, my main guess is that, you know, children tend to get sick more than adults. um, And that's probably why. Um, But I don't think there's like enough concrete research to say that is the exact reason, but it does mainly affect kids. I gotcha. And you you talked about your, your, your mental aspects of it and kind of rolling with the punches, which is awesome. So it may make, you know, the question I had about that kind of moot, but I still wonder, you know, the, the mental health aspect of it where, you know, I feel like maybe being, and I could be wrong, but I feel like maybe being born with a disability and that's all that you've ever known affects people differently than it happening to them when they did know something else. So talk about kind of the mental health aspect of knowing that your life did forever change and kind of accepting that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely think being born with a disability is a lot different than acquiring one. And I think there's pros and cons to both um, because if if you're born with one, it's all that you've ever known. Um, But acquiring one, you kind of have the ability to like miss what you used to have in some ways. Um, But also I think there are some benefits to acquiring one versus being born with one. Um, In my case, I had a lot of post-traumatic growth and like i realize that there's so many positives to being disabled. And I feel like becoming disabled really helped me realize that and like be thankful for um, the life that I have with my disability. Um, And I think it's really important to talk about mental health with disability because they are kind of intertwined. You know, disabled people are more likely to have mental health issues for various reasons. And it's not always because of their disability. It's often because of the way society treats disabled people and the lack of accessibility within society. Um, I do think I dealt with it very well, though. I think it's something that's very difficult to deal with. And I'm just the type of person that when I have something really difficult happen in my life, I tend to deal with it very well, no matter what it is. But I do think it's 
a good conversation to have talking about how there are positive aspects to being disabled, but we need to acknowledge the challenges and work through those and help the people that are experiencing those struggles. Absolutely. And I mean, this is a, a small part given that, you know, you're, you were the one that, you know, really had to deal with it, but I, I have to ask you, you were eight years old that changed your, your parents' life for, you know, forever too. I mean, how did, how did they cope? And I mean, what did they do to make sure that their mental health was something that they, they focused on? Cause I can only imagine that that was, that was a, a huge thing for them too. Yeah, it definitely was. And my mom and I were already close before everything happened, but it actually brought us closer together because mm. I needed a lot of help with things like getting dressed and taking showers. And my mom was of course the one who helped me with those things. And even though it wasn't ideal to have her help me, it kind of gave us more time together, which was nice. And we took a lot of medical trips together to go see doctors. So we had that time together and that was a really positive thing. But it was really hard for my mom to accept everything at first. I remember her often like, you know, crying or just being upset a lot in the beginning. But I think once she saw that I started to achieve so many things because of my disability, not in spite of my disability, but because of it, Mm. she really began to have a more positive mindset around everything. And since she knows that I wouldn't regret anything and that I actually like am thankful for the things my disability has brought me, she, her seeing me having those positive attitudes has helped her develop one as well. So I think all around, like we've definitely had those mental health challenges, but we've coped with them pretty well. Uh, that's that's really good to hear, and, and I know that you you expected a couple months later to be back, you know, in dance. I, I know that probably didn't happen, but you did get back to dance at, at some point. I know that was important to you. Talk kind of about that journey back to, uh, you know, whether it was ballet or whether it was dance. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I of course didn't get back to it as soon as I thought I would, but after I got out of the hospital, we were practicing like walking and stuff in therapy. And I stood on my tiptoes. And that was when I was like, maybe I could try dancing again. And at home, I tried doing some of the dances I would always do like to my dance company's videos. And my dad was there watching to make sure everything was okay. And I remember like kicking him out of the room being like, I'm fine. Um, And just kind of getting back to that. And I tried going back to actual classes, but it just wasn't the same. I didn't like how I felt a little singled out and I wasn't treated the greatest by my dance company. I didn't feel like super welcomed back. Mm. So I left after returning for a couple of classes and then I didn't go back. Um, And I kind of just made dance my own thing. I haven't been back to a company since then. I enjoy doing it on my own. And I actually got into choreography because I realized I needed to adapt the dance moves so I could actually do them. And I started just making up my own dances to suit what my body could do. And that helped me develop a new hobby. So dancing for me is more just kind of a side hobby now, but it is something that I will always love. And I like that I now have the new addition of choreography to go along with it. 
Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, I've seen some of your dance videos on YouTube. So who needs the dance studios? It, it seems like you're doing a, a great job all on your own. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. I, I always like to kind of talk about all the, the positive aspects of everything. And I feel like with something like this, it'd be easy to ask people, you know, what what limiting factors have you had to deal with? I don't, I'm not even going to ask that question. I want to know more about through this disability, through the change of your abilities, you know, what positive things have, have came about? What, uh, what op- opportunities have, have you gotten that probably would have never gotten if you didn't have this happen to you? Oh, so many things. And this is my favorite thing to talk about. And it's actually kind of like what I've built my platform around is talking about the positive aspects of disability. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that even though people might not always see the positive aspects of disability, there has to be at least one thing, like whether it's something small, like you gained more knowledge about like science, because now you're aware of what your disorder is, just little things like that are positive things. Um, so I love to talk about this. And for me, I've had so many, um, my biggest one is definitely the people that I've met. One of my best friends I wouldn't have known without my disability because she has a similar disability to me. And we met while we were both getting treatment at Johns Hopkins and Baltimore. And she lives in Chicago and I'm from Atlanta, but we're best friends. Um, she's also four years older. We're like sisters, basically. Um, so she's just an example of one of the people that I wouldn't know, but there's so many more. Um, I've also had so many amazing experiences. I had my make a wish trip. I got to meet one direction. (laughs) I talk about that all the time. Um, and so many cool experiences came out of that as well. Just the whole make a wish trip. I have gotten to, um, model in a fashion show that was all disabled models showing um, adaptive clothing, which is like accessible clothing for disabled people. And I'm now aware of so many more things. And I feel like it's made me into a better person. I mean, it's hard to say like how I would have been because I was so young, but I definitely know I wouldn't know all the stuff that I know. Um, Just in terms of like, not only like sciencey stuff, like I'm fascinated with like the spinal cord and like neurons and all that type of stuff, but also just like accessibility and like the importance of that and looking out for other people. So there's been so many things and that's just a few, but those are like the main positive things. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned accessibility and, and uh, earlier you mentioned your disability advocacy. I want to talk a little bit about that and just what you want people to, I guess, to understand and know about that. I think that's something that people are only, a lot of people are only just now learning about just the, the need for simple, simple things just to, to help accommodate and make things more accessible. So talk a little bit about that, if you will. Yeah. The main thing that I want people to know is that accessibility is part of the work. It's not extra work. Hmm. So basically that means when you're planning an event or you're building a building or starting an organization or making an Instagram post or any other social media post, you have to think about accessibility while you're doing it and not afterwards. Mm -hmm. And this actually helps everyone because if you implement accessibility retroactively, then you're just going back and fixing things that could have been done ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I always want people to know. And I focus on this a lot at school with my club, Davidson Disability Alliance. 
We do a lot of education on accessibility in general, but especially social media accessibility and accessibility within the classroom. Um, so some things that teachers and professors can think about is the policies they have for their classroom, such as like, if you have a no technology policy, that's limiting accessibility for students who might need technology. Even if they have an accommodation for it, it just causes extra work for the professor because they have to make sure they have stuff accessible for just one student online. When if they did it for everyone, it's so much easier. Um, and in terms of social media accessibility, uh, my club has been educating students on alt text, like for visually impaired people and adding captions to videos for deaf and hard of hearing people. So there's so many different areas of accessibility and I love talking about them, but the main thing is do it proactively, not retroactively. No, I, I like that a lot. Um, I want to kind of talk about your, your books. You've written three books. Uh, tell us a little bit about them, kind of a brief synopsis of, of the three and what people are going to learn if, if they pick those up. Yeah. So I have written a tr trilogy with my best friend that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. Jen. She's the one that I met at Johns Hopkins. And we started this when we were both very young. I was 10 and she was 14. Mm. And we just kind of did it out of the blue and put our stories together into one book. So the first book is called 5K Ballet and a Spinal Cord Injury. It's a long name, but it has that name because Jen was a runner. So that's the 5K part and then me, dancer, ballet. And then we both had spinal cord injuries. And we just kind of share our stories about what happened to us and how we met in that book. And then the sequel is called Determination. And this was written when we were about... 14 and 18. And in this one, we talk about like growing up as a teenager and kind of learning to adapt to being disabled and the things that we learned along the way. And then the third and final one is called Up and Down. And this one was when we were about like 17 and 21. And this one focuses on like the ups and downs of being disabled and how we found the positive aspects in our lives and how we gained independence as we grew older into kind of young adulthood. So it's really interesting because it does show us from many years of our lives, which is really cool. And it's funny because both of us like hate going back and reading them ourselves, mm -hmm. but because, you know, we were so young, we're like, oh no, we'd never write it like this now. But that's part of what makes it so cool is because it's not often you can read a 10-year-old's perspective on their disability experience. Usually these types of stories are written from the parents or the caregiver's perspective. So we love that we were able to like highlight disabled voices in our books. No, I think that's, that's really cool. How can people find them? Um, they're all on Amazon. Um, so you can find them easily there. And I also have them on my Etsy account and I sign them if you want me to sign them. And so that makes it like a little more special, I guess. So Amazon and Etsy. Absolutely. You said that you wrote a trilogy. I don't even know what it's called if you write more. So maybe you've got to stop there. But do you think that you're, do you have a passion for writing anymore? Or are you like, you know, that's, that's, that's good. We, we've done what we need to do. <laughs> Writing's my main thing, actually. Oh. Um, it's funny. The other day I was going to a club meeting. We were introducing ourselves. And one of the things we had to say was our hobby. And my favorite hobby I listed was writing. I do it all the time. 
even just like writing little things like on social media, like captions, I consider like a form of writing. That's like the main way I do my advocacy work is writing. And I'm actually working on a fourth book. I've been working on it for a while. It's almost done. And this one's by myself and it's a different style to the others. Um, The others were more focused on telling my individual story. And this one's going to be more focused on um, advocacy work and areas of focus within the disability advocacy realm. Um, So I don't think I'll ever stop writing. It's definitely like my top favorite thing to do at the moment. That's awesome. I know you're in, in school. So obviously you're, you're working on, on graduating there. You talked about writing beginning of our conversation. You talked about maybe a a law school track. So just tell us what you, you hope the future holds. Obviously we never truly know, but what do you, what do you hope uh, is going to happen for, for Sarah Todd at some point? Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, um, I said earlier, the pre-law track, I have considered this in the past and then kind of thought I wouldn't do it, but then I came back to it recently. I've known that I've wanted to do something with disability advocacy. I just didn't really know what the outlet would be, but I've thought about it and I feel like law would be such a great outlet. I really love educating people on things pertaining to disability and I also Um, can be pretty assertive when it comes to advocating for my needs and other people's needs. I'm not scared to tell people when they're doing something wrong and tell them how to fix it. Um, So I think that would be a really, really cool thing for me to do. I still have two years of college left after this year ends, so I have some time, which is nice. Um, But during this time, I hope to publish my fourth book. I'm hoping to do that this year and possibly more. I mean, I'm sure because still really young. So I'll probably publish more. And I've been doing a lot of social media advocacy work, um, especially within the past like year and a half. So I'll be continuing that and I'll be continuing my own podcast. I just started season two of it yesterday. So I have a lot going on. um, And I'm really excited to see the things I get to do in the future. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So you do have a lot going on. Where, where do people find all these things if they want to uh, they want to keep up with you? Um, my website is just my full name. So www.saratodhammer.com. I have like all my links and articles on there and like access to my books. And then my Instagram is my full name. So is my TikTok, my YouTube. Um, those are the main places where people can find me. What's the name of the podcast if people are just heading on Spotify or something for that? Um, it's called Positively Opposite. Um, that's also linked on my website. Um, but yes, it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a few other places as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, the good thing about having that unique name is you were able just to get your name as a website. I think if it was just Sarah yes. Sarah Hammer or something, maybe that one's already taken. So there's a positive, right? We're looking yes. at those positives. <laughs> Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I'm so excited. I got to talk to you. This is a great opportunity and I appreciate it. Absolutely. So that was Sarah Todd Hammer. What an amazing person. Just really enjoyed speaking with her. Like I said at the beginning, I learned so much from her about, you know, the, the world of, uh, you know, disability advocacy and then the world of just reasonable accommodations just like she said there's so many things that aren't uh, aren't difficult to to find 
ways to to accommodate those who who might need it uh, but we we just don't always do a, a great job of making sure that we're we're filling those needs and and we're not uh, we're very reactive instead of proactive just just like she mentioned so learn so much I hope you did too I hope you you see that uh, I want to kind of mention it again that I mentioned in the beginning just doing things because of her disability doing positive things because of it and not in spite of it you know there's so many times that we people look at oh my gosh sir somebody's able to do this even though they're disabled no that's that's silly a lot of times there's positives to it and and it's because of the experiences they've had because of the you know differences in abilities that someone's had is, is why that they are who they are and why they're so successful so I uh, I learned so much from Sarah Todd such an amazing person do recommend you go check out her books go check out her website go check out that podcast she mentioned all of them they'll be in the show notes too uh, but I uh, appreciate Sarah Todd's uh, Todd's time and uh, I, I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed the, the conversation as much as I did go check us out as well not enough podcast on Instagram jacksonup.com get on Apple get on Spotify leave those five-star rankings um, give us the the five-star review uh, on uh, on Apple I guess that five-star review would be a, a written review and I would really appreciate that too but uh, thanks for being here we'll catch you next time take it away Chris this has been not in a huff with Jackson Huff thank you for listening be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.